Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Kelsey Henry, and it's my pleasure today to be in conversation with Dr. Ryan Lee Cartwright. Ryan Lee is an assistant professor of American studies at UC Davis. Uh, his research focuses on disability, gender, and sexuality on the social and spatial margins, and he teaches courses on a number of different topics, uh, including disability studies, queer and trans history, social welfare in the 1990s, and landscapes and places. Ryan Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I'm going to start with a question that we love to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, mostly because the stories are so individual. Can you start by telling us about how you got here? So your path to disability studies and disability history. Did you come into academia with the expectation that this is where you would land? Um, or has your positioning in disability history surprised you? I think my story uh, is probably similar to many people's story in that my path to disability studies and disability history um, sort of ran parallel to my own uh, experience, personal experiences with disability. So um, as an undergraduate, I was majoring in sociology. And for my research, um, a professor recommended that I look at eugenic family studies. So that was the first time I started doing um, history because those are from the 1910s. Um, and it was also, um, you know, it was very, disability was very much a part of that. With specific chapters of my dissertation, I would be looking at disability, but um, I really, I didn't have any classes in disability studies um, in or advisors who focused on disability in either undergrad or grad school, um, but I became sort of undeniably disabled at the end of college. And so then that, uh, as I sort of grappled with that more through grad school, um, disability became, you know, I was, I was reading a lot of disability studies on my own, um, and that became more central to my uh, my work. And then um, in the dissertation, I analyzed disability in different places, but it wasn't part of the overall framework. Um, and then as I revised that to be this book, disability became much more central. It was it was there all along, but I, I, pull, I pulled out the threads and it became much more central because by then I'd had a number of years of being in disability community and you know, reading and participating in disability studies and disability history and had a better ability to, to, you know, make that part of the framework overall. An arrival at disability history or disability studies often um, is this collision point between the personal and the political and the professional and it deepens over time. Um, I'm so glad that I got to sort of witness at least one of the um, the places that you landed, this book, Peculiar Places, which has such a deep and rich disability history analysis. And it's really beautiful to think about how that depth grew over time, um, not only because of what you were reading, but because of the communities that you were in and what felt urgent to you personally as well. So in late 2021, you published a book called Peculiar Places, A Queer Crip History of White Rural Nonconformity with University of Chicago Press. And I had the great pleasure of reading it. Uh, congratulations for publishing it. It was such, such a fantastic book. And you read landscapes of perverse white rural poverty and spectacularized figures of white rural impoverishment. So some of the figures that you're thinking through are, and I'm, I say perverse and degenerate in quotes, um, these are historical terms that were used at the time. So some of the figures that you were thinking with were degenerate white families in early 20th century eugenic family studies, uh, murderous and sexually backward brothers, uh, the effeminate reclusive bachelor, just to name a few. And you're really looking at places and people that were crafted and maligned in news media, in horror films for the American public, in documentary photography. And you're looking at these figures, these places and these people through the lens of disability history and queer history. 
And I'm wondering, uh, you kind of already mentioned that this came out of your dissertation project or some version of the dissertation pro project, but how did you arrive at peculiar places? How did the project grow and change over time from the book project or the book that I read and the dissertation that you wrote initially? So yeah, the book did emerge out of my dissertation. Um, so the bulk of the research um, is drawn from the dissertation I added. Uh, two chapters and a lot of research for a third chapter. So the chapter on um, the war on poverty and the poverty tours in the 1960s, that was a new chapter. Um, the chapter on hate crime documentaries in the 1990s, that was a new chapter. And then um, the chapter on Ed Dean, who was a, um, a Wisconsin farmer and murderer in the 1950s. Um, he is also the person that uh, that all kinds of um, characters such as Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, all of these characters that are purportedly quote unquote like crazy and purportedly trans in some way are based on this story of Ed Gein. So um, for the book, I was able to do research on with the actual court records and things like that. So I did a lot of research, completely rewrote that chapter. Um, and also, you know, given how vexed it was, you know, wanted to be very careful about how I wrote about it. Um, and then in terms of the framework, I, I fleshed out the idea of uh, queer crip history and figured out how um, the mundane sort of fit into that. I know we'll talk about, we'll unpack some of those words later, so I don't want to do too much of that now, but I'll just leave that for now. So I read a lot of true crime. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and I'm a huge horror fan, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is my favorite horror film, and uh, I knew a lot about Ed Gein's case coming in. I've read a lot about Ed Gein, so <laughs> I was so excited to encounter some of the sites that you chose to analyze as someone who's also coming from queer studies and disability history, um, because I haven't seen those lenses applied to these sites and, or these films before. So it was really exciting. So you've already named some of your archives and your sites of analysis. Uh, you've mentioned Ed Gein, you've uh, mentioned the poverty tours. Uh, I thought that one of the most exciting parts of your book was the fact that your archives and your sites are really so sprawling. You're looking at true crime, you're looking at horror, you're looking at not only documentary photography, but documentary film and eugenic science. Um, and I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about why these particular sites and what they revealed about the larger stakes of your project. So the, the book, spans the 20th century. So it starts in the 1910s and goes through the 1990s. So the first chapter looks at eugenic family studies um, in the 1910s for the most part. The next chapter looks at um, documentary photography from the Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, the third chapter looks at uh, Ed Gein um, in the 1950s. Um, the fourth chapter is the one on the war on poverty and the poverty tours. Um, and the fifth chapter is uh, horror films of the 1970s, like Deliverance and Texas Chainsaw. And then the final chapter looks at hate crimes documentaries in the 1990s, specifically the Brandon Tina story and a film called Brothers Keeper. Um, so, um, you know, I'm a historian, but I'm an interdisciplinary historian. And for me, the change over time question is is one of the harder questions for me to answer. Um, but the, the sort of the, the trajectory of these chapters is that um, the, the kinds of discourses and ways of looking that I'm analyzing really, they existed before the 20th century, but it was in the start of the 20th century with eugenic family studies that they really became part of a national discourse and that these stories that were told about, you know, odd people down the road or, you know, you know, you know, the eccentric person over there, whatever, that they became part of a, this, this gossip became nationalized um, and spread beyond the regions that it was, it was starting in. 
what you're saying is making me think about uh, this term that you were using that you introduced in your introduction, which was that Peculiar Places uses anti-idyllic science, art, media, and politics as an imaginative resource for thinking about uh, the materiality. And I love this phrase that you used, often the ambiguous ingenuity of living that being disabled, poor, sexually non-conforming um, in the rural United States requires. Um, and I'm wondering if you can say more about how you were conceptualizing the anti-idol and its relationship to um, more dominant and perhaps more immediately familiar uh, myths in the United States of white rustic virtue. Sure. The way that I describe the anti-idol anti in the book is that it um, it's a name for a social optic that produces stories about white rural nonconformity. Um, so to, to back up, since the, you know, the time of the Jeffersonian yeoman farmer, part of the mythology of the U.S. as a nation has been this idea of white rustic virtue and health. Um, and that has taken different forms at different times over the decades and centuries. Um, the anti-idol is in some ways the flip side of that. The term anti-idol comes from a geographer named David Bell, um, who describes um, the anti-idol as the behind the sofa uh, countryside, a place far, far from idyllic and a place that's hidden from view. It's usually easier to describe references to it than to describe it itself. So for people who've seen Deliverance, Deliverance immediately conjures it. Um, for people who have seen the X-Files episode Home, um, where there's um, a disabled woman living under a bed and brothers, it's a whole, it's too much to get into here. But that episode also conjures it immediately. Um, so, uh, so um, yeah, so in some ways, the anti-idol is kind of the flip side of, of white rustic virtue. It's kind of the the excess that that doesn't fit into that narrative, but it's also more than that. So um, the anti-idol and the idol, I argue, work hand in hand. They work together. So the anti-idol romanticizes while the anti-idol grades, and they work kind of hand in hand to present like two extreme versions that both get away from the complexity um, and sort of uh, mundane realities of, of life among, um, in rural white communities or, or among rural white people. Um, and um, also I, I analyze the anti-idol uh, as a way of looking. So rather than saying that it is, so for me, the anti-idol is not a group of people or a community, but it's a way of looking at a group of people or a community or a place or or a narrative, whatever it is, um, and seeing this kind of degraded vision that the viewer comes in already wanting to see. So in my later chapters, I'll often point to people who were on the ground and who came into whatever situation they were in already imagining what they were going to find and then and then finding it there. Yeah, so that's the, the anti-idol. I really love the way you put that. When I was reading the book, I knew that you were thinking about the anti-idol as a way of looking, but the way that you just conceptualized it as an expectant gaze or an anticipatory mm -hmm. gaze that is sort of always already, at least like in, in the 20th century, like as we get deeper and deeper into the 20th century um, and kind of the, the idioms of the anti-idol become a lot formal, a lot more familiar to broader swaths mm -hmm. of the American public. Um, it's kind of an always already expectant or anticipatory gaze, a way of thinking, looking at white uh, rural poverty. And continuing along this thread of the anti-idol as a way of looking, uh, you decided to center analyses of this rural white anti-idol as it was promoted by white onlookers in particular uh, from a vantage point of comparative authority or affluence or socioeconomic privilege. So I'm thinking about like in your first uh, two chapters, 
the eugenic social worker as uh, as the one who looks, the one who is developing or projecting an anti-idol, the FSA photographers, um, Linda B. Johnson on his poverty tours. Um, so all figures of whiteness, but figures of a different kind of whiteness. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about why you chose this vantage point for your study. I have a couple thoughts. So. Um, one is that there are a lot of different, there are a lot of different vantage points in each circumstance. So, um, so they are white onlookers from a vantage point of comparative authority, but there are differences between them and among them. So sometimes it's somebody who, um, lives in a community, but is a more middle-class member of that community. And so they've got a little bit different relationship to the poor people in their own community, maybe feel like a paternalistic sense of like authority over them or, or something like that. Um, and then there are the people from out of town, and then there are people with, you know, a, a range of different positions. Um, but I'll focus on one example to talk through this, I think. And that's, so in 1964, Lyndon Johnson, um, announced um, a war on poverty in the State of the Union. And then in April and May, he went on these poverty tours to rural white communities um, that were in Appalachia or said to be in Appalachia. In this case, they were in North Carolina and not really part of the mountains, which was a whole scandal at the time. But but so they were they were meant to represent Appalachia, whether they were from there or not. And so shortly after the war on poverty became like after um, some of the urban uprisings and things like that in black communities, the war on poverty quickly became understood as a black bill. But initially, the Johnson administration deliberately wanted it to be a white bill because the Civil Rights Act had already passed. Uh, and so they didn't they didn't want to be seen as having two black bills together. So it was initially represented as a white bill. And so they they visited these families um, to be the face of white rural poverty in the US. Um, and one of the families that Johnson visited was a woman named Doris Marlowe, her husband, William, and the rest of their family. Um, so when I analyze the story, I look at how the news about Johnson's visit with them, and then also the gossip that resulted from that visit, how that circulated in a lot of different um, circumstances. So I look at how local newspapers represented it and also, you know, larger newspapers in the state, which don't always have the same perspective. Um, what I look at what uh, the LBJ officials said behind the scenes. I look at what local and state officials in North Carolina were saying behind the scenes. Um, and then I also look at the letters that Doris Marlowe wrote back to Lyndon Johnson. And that was something, you know, when people, people who aren't historians ask, you know, like, oh, do you have those like aha moments in the archives? I have to explain like, no, not really, because I'm looking at so much material all at once and I'm not quite sure yet what my folk, you know, so that rarely happens. But in this case, there was one of those moments, which was that I, I found these letters from from Doris Marlowe and some of the other families he visited on this tour as well to um, Lyndon Johnson um, or his administration. And um, one of the things that stood out to me was that in the margins of one of the letters, um, somebody in, um, it might've been Bill Moyer, it was in his files, it might've been somebody else, wrote Marlowe again with two exclamation points, um, showing that they were sort of frustrated at, at how often, how persistent, um, Mrs. Marlowe had been, she had been asking them just straight out, been asking them for money, for cash, for jobs, sorts of things like that. Um, and so, um, uh, although I'm looking at, at views that are usually elite, whether local elite or state elite or, you know, federal in some ways, um, I, I use those views, but I don't cede authority to them. Um, so that's, that's one takeaway. And then the other is, I think that overall, um, I am using elite v views, but I'm not ceding authority to them. Um, and whenever possible, I'm looking at where people that, you know, were not part of these elites, how they were speaking back or, or making, you know, making waves or sort of making themselves known in some way. Another question that's coming up for me, especially if you view this project within the larger field of like critical white studies, 
what you're imagining um, was going on in terms of negotiating the boundaries and parameters of whiteness. I'm wondering what was going on in terms of preserving white supremacy, if you feel like that was a part or that's a part of the story that you're trying to tell in the production of the anti-idol, um, in the stories, the ways of looking that comparatively more privileged white onlookers were generating about sort of whiteness on the periphery or whiteness on the fringe. I'm trying to think which chapter would be the best for thinking this through. The eugenics chapter, it might be most obvious because um, so eugenic family studies were books called the jukes that was proto-eugenic but it was part of that um, and the Calicac family and uh, so you know many aspects of eugenic science and politics were focused on things like immigration laws and um, you know interracial marriage bans and things like that and sterilization laws that were passed in the 1910s you know, the most famous examples in the 1910s were white women like Carrie Buck. Um, but the people who were who were most affected by those laws were women of color and immigrant, uh, black women, Im immigrant women of color, um, indigenous women. Um, and so all of these aspects of eugenic policy focused um, on either preventing reproduction among people of color or preventing um, certain immigrants and people of color from becoming part of the body politic through immigration and things like that. Um, and then amid all of that, there were these, these studies like the Jukes and the Calicacs and literally hundreds of others that were done that focused on um, predominantly white communities, occasionally mixed race communities. Um, um, there's one called uh, the Mongrel Virginians, which you can probably guess what the subject of that is, um, that was written about the 1924 um, interracial marriage ban in Virginia. But, but, and so that one was a little bit of a different case, but for the most part, they were predominantly white families that occasionally would have, um, you know, a family member that was, that was Black or Indigenous in some way. Um, and so these, these studies and this, this focus on um, the white folks that you know were poor representations of whiteness still functioned to shore up um, white supremacy by saying on one hand that these are exceptions it's not all white people um it's it's just these very particular communities it's this very specific type of white person um or white u.s born person non-immigrant person um that's part of it and then the other was to sort of say that like the white race can can you know fully ascend to its superior place um, once we take care of these few little exceptions um, among whiteness. So I think that's the most probably obvious example because it's eugenics and it's very explicitly dealing with with white supremacy. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, the way that you're thinking about disability history and queer studies together because you position your project at this intersection between disability studies, disability history, and queer studies. But one of the, one of the moments that I really loved in your, in your introduction is that you explained to your readers that the subjects of peculiar places, and this is a direct quote, are frequently out of sorts, abrading the edges of fields like queer studies, transgender studies, disability studies, and working class studies without fitting in them neatly, end quote. Uh, can you say more about how you understand uh, the proper subjects or the proper objects of these fields? And I believe in one of your chapters, you even referred to one of your actors as a bad subject. And I'd love to hear more about why did some of the subjects in your study feel like bad subjects? Um, within the fields that you've chosen to work in and what might that indicate about the disciplinary boundaries, but also the limitations that maybe we should be pushing up against in disability history and in queer studies. Sure, thank you. Um, so I think that uh, 
bad subject by bad subjects i mean a couple of things so one is that they're not immediately legible as subjects belonging to the field um and then another is that they're bad meaning that we might not want to be associated with them or might not want um you know, especially in a field that's, you know, still fairly young, like disability studies, we might not want them to be the sort of representative subject of the field. So um, by way of example, I'll talk about chapter two, which is the chapter on, um, on uh, documentary photography during the Great Depression. So, um, so, I mean, first of all, they're, you know, the photographs, for the most part, don't have a lot of text with them. So, you know, you're not you don't have uh people self-identifying as disabled or being sort of filed under disability within you know an archive um but but also even when i've you know presented work about that chapter it always led to a lot of discussion about who was disabled who was queer what that meant I, I look at a couple different um, collections of photographs in that chapter, and one of them focuses on this uh, this retirement home for disabled bachelor lumberjacks, all of them white, in northern Minnesota. And so the photographs are um, the main ones that I analyzed were, you know, these men sitting on a bed together being posed for for the photograph. And there's one in particular where. Um, there are th three of the, the white men are sitting on the bed. They're all, um, all of the men who were pictured are um, elderly in their 70s, 80s. I think one was 90. Um, and these three men are sitting in the bed um, and two of them um, are sort of leaning together. They, um, they're supporting each other. Um, and one of them leans kind of tenderly toward the other um, who sits primly beside him. And Throughout the book, I don't, I I try to make it clear that my um, methodology is queer and crip, but I'm not claiming that any of the particular uh, people in the book would identify as queer or crip or you know fit into that necessarily. There's also obviously um, the burden of proof required to claim that that a historical figure was queer is very different than the burden of proof required to assume that they are straight or cis or both. Um, so that has certainly, you know, led to conversations. Um, but regardless, I, I'm not claiming the men are gay, but just but just trying to speak to the intimacy between them um, and the 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 um, shared domesticity between between all of the men. Um, and then in terms of disability, you know, they're all elderly and many people, even people who weren't disabled when they were younger, acquire disabilities as they age. But there was a lot of conversation about what are the specific disabilities that people are perceiving among these men. So there's there's one of the men um, who's in a different photograph has um, a, a gnarled hand. Um, so that is, um, or a burled hand. So that is kind of a more obvious disability, although it's not clear to me whether that would have had a functional impact on his life because those types of injuries were quite common among, among lumberjacks. Um, but the way that I analyze disability, so one of the men, of the two men who are, who are sort of intimately leaning against each other, one of them is not, his gaze is not oriented to the camera. Um, the other one um, has, um, there are uh, signs that, you know, perhaps he has, um, 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 difficulty with dexterity. Um, you know, he wears uh, cuffs to hold up the, the oversized shirt sleeves to, to sort of hold them up on his arms. Um, his pants aren't buttoned, but he wears suspenders to hold them up. So there are all of these kinds of indirect ways of perceiving that, that um, they're not able-bodied per se, but they're not associated with a specific diagnosis or you know clinical definition or anything like that. But then again, you know, if disability is not defined by medicine, you shouldn't necessarily need that either. But so, so the lumberjacks are an example of, of subjects who maybe don't fit neatly into either disability history or queer history because it's not 
exactly clear, like in what way they are disabled or what their, you know, their relationship to queerness is. So another thing with the lumberjacks in terms of the bad meaning that we might not want them to be the, you know, like the primary example of disability studies is that they were also settler colonizers um, on land that belonged to Red Lake Ojibwe or rightfully belonged to Red Lake Ojibwe. And so um, that also makes them, um, you know, bad subjects that we might not want to identify with. Um, some of the subjects in the book are more um, sensationally bad, you know, like they're, you know, accused of homicide, maybe did commit homicide, things like that. But in any case, um, you know, uh, there are also people who might be understood to be malingering or their disability was addiction um, or there's complexity. Like in the case of the fratricidal brothers, one of them was accused of murdering, and this is from the chapter on the 1990s um, and the documentary Brothers Keeper. One of them was accused of killing the other um, and both of them were disabled. And so it makes the analysis of caregiver violence different when the person perpetrating it is also disabled and marginalized in the same ways and is a brother. So it's not like, you know, a, a parent child, you know, the, the dynamics and relationships among them are just are complicated. Um, but yeah, so that's the, that's the, the other meaning of bad subjects. So brilliant. And I could go in so many different directions and respond to a variety of things that you just said. But I think to start, as you were talking, I was really thinking about how one of the things that is so special about your project and the kind of, I know we're going to circle back around and talk more about a queer crit method or queer crit methodology. Um, but I think that you are approaching disability history from a standpoint that feels more akin to uh, different projects and approaches that I've seen in disability studies, and which makes sense because you're an interdisciplinary historian. But I, there's been a huge shift in disability studies towards what happens and if we, if we shift our thinking about disability away from a noun or identity, or as you were saying, like basing, um, who we look for archivally on uh, medical diagnoses. Uh, what if we move away from diagnoses, disability as a noun, disability as an identity? So like something that these individual historical actors might've claimed or asserted, and instead think about disability, like doing disability history, disability as a verb, thinking about ways of reading, asking questions um, that are in alignment with how do we make sense of complex embodiment <laughs> um, or complex body minds in a way that doesn't always adhere to disability as an identity, but is attending to uh, structurally debilitating condi conditions, for example, in the workplace, um, under conditions of poverty, under conditions of structural uh, systemic racism, how does that change the way we're thinking about disability? And I haven't seen as much of that yet in disability history. Uh, so it's really exciting to see someone who's doing that work of complicating, like who gets to be um, the subject or the object of inquiry in disability, in disability history. So I really love that about your work. But I wanted to ask a question uh, kind of lingering on this, the trouble with or the complexity of working with bad subjects. You, you started touching on this, um, but I I'm wondering if you can think a little bit more with me. Several of your subjects, some of them real, others fictional, were accused of or associated with violence, whether this was sexual violence, homicide, uh, they were set settler colonizers. Um, how did you hold uh, the moral nuances of turning to these stories and these people as valuable subjects for study without dismissing histories of violence, whether they were real or they were rumored? 
Yeah, thank you. We were talking before about anti-idyllic ways of looking and the sort of expectant gaze of what what somebody expects to to find in a poor rural white community where they have these ideas of quote unquote degeneracy and things like that. And um, those ideas that they carried with them uh, often involved violence and um, and sometimes that violence included sexual violence. Um, one of the things that was important to me was to kind of look at the mundane details to disaggregate a person who commits violence in one of these communities from the communities themselves. So I'll, I'll give an example. So, and I should just give a, um, a, a trigger warning for um, um, incest and childhood sexual assault um, for a bit. So in the, the chapter on the war on poverty, I start with, there was um, um, uh, a man who was working for the Kennedy administration who was in West Virginia um, during Kennedy's um, primary campaign there. And he went there and expected uh, a very specific kind of community. And so he was talking to uh, people there. Um, he, he met a guy who was from there and who uh, said that he could uh, pretend to be a telephone company worker to look in on this family on a hillside cottage that was, um, you know, this kind of perverse, degenerate type of family that he was expecting. So that's what he did. He dressed up, he pretended to work for a telephone company, and he went to this, these people's house for no legitimate reason, right? And then while he's there, he sees people with disabilities and he encounters two people having sex. And then he makes, again, he was in their house uninvited um, and he makes a lot of assumptions. And I think um, I'm going to quote from him a little bit to so you, you get a sense of um, what his expectations was. So he said that as he drove up to the cottage, he saw two people who, quote, really did look like one eyes, who were, quote, just kind of slobbering. Um, and then later, as, as I said, he saw a boy and a girl making love. Um, and so those circumstances led Horton to uh, he took those those circumstances as confirmation of a rumor that he had heard. The rumor being that the father of the family had sexually assaulted and impregnated two of his daughters. Um, so I wanted to to like parse through that story. So Hooten thought that it was just like oh this terrible tale of you know degeneracy and violence and sex and incest and, and all these sorts of things, but really he again, went to these people's home uninvited. He saw people having sex, whether or not the sex was of the circumstances he was assuming, um, I don't know. But if it was, um, then he was adding to the situation. Here's this strange man, strange man watching this encounter. And so I wanted to address circumstances like that in order to, again, break down the power dynamics and the sense that, that you know, both the, in anti-idyllic ways of looking, both the father and the daughters who were the victims of the father um, would be seen as just kind of representative of this kind of perverse degeneracy. And so it was important to me to separate that out and say, no, the, like the father is a person, you know, committing violence and the daughters are victims of that, but they're not interchangeable with each other. Like the victim and the perpetrator are not interchangeable with each other. Like as the sort of anti-idyllic lens would, um, or way of looking like, um, assumes. So you provided this anecdote that is really uh, a very concrete example of the anti-idol in, in action. So this expectant gaze, uh, an onlooker who's going into a community and bringing all of their assumptions about the deviance of white rural poverty with them and is mapping that on to everything that they're seeing. Um, a lot of the, the sites and the source material that you were working with were these sensational, like sensationalized accounts of uh, a kind of pathological white rural poverty. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about your choice to read for uh, mundane materialities of everyday life um, within these sensational narratives. So combing through them, 
for something that hasn't been observed before, um, that, uh, that are often overlooked in order to emphasize stories of shocking violence, perverse sexuality, peculiar body minds um, that are supposedly uh, endemic in white rural America. So why focus on the mundane? Why focus on the ordinary or the familiar? And what do we what do we gain? What do we learn? What do we trouble when we look for the mundane in the sensational? I think to to think through the mundane and the ordinary and familiar, um, the best chapter to draw from is the chapter on Ed Gein. Um, so. As a refresher, Edgeen was um, a white farmer in Wisconsin in the 1950s. He um, had uh, he murdered a woman when the police came to his home. They found all sorts of other ghoulish things in his home. So they found um, and trigger warning again for I don't even know what it's called. Uh, yeah, probably body horror and ghoulish things. Um, he used human skin to make things to upholster chairs. He used, uh, you know, things like that. Um, he had bits of bodies all around his home. It turned out that almost all of them were corpses that he had disinterred um, from the ground. Um, and uh, there were all types of rumors spread about him, including this idea that he had, uh, quote unquote, wanted to be a woman or had a feminine complex that was framed in all sorts of different ways. And so, as I was saying earlier, this was the seed that laid the groundwork for the idea of the, the quote unquote, crazy trans woman killer um, that we see in so much media. I couldn't possibly name it all, certainly not only horror. Um, like uh, um, Pretty Little Liars, I think had that kind of narrative, you know, all, all sorts of shows. Um, so um, in writing about Gein, I was really um, uh, guided by um, Eli Clare. So he talks about what he calls a disability politics of transness, um, where he asks us to treat bodily difference as profoundly familiar. Um, and he points out that familiar and ordinary aren't the same thing as normal. So normal is an external standard. It's mythical. It's it's not really achievable. But um, focusing on the ordinary, he says, allows us to think about ambivalence and grief and longing and have more complex conversations. So with Dean, I thought, so if he if he was if he did experience gender dysphoria and if he did have what we might consider a mental disability, um, if those were true things about him, uh, what, what if those were ordinary things? Like what if those were mundane? So rather than assuming that either of those things, anybody can commit a murder, right? The vast majority of violence is, is um, done by people who are, quote unquote, in their right mind, you know, and under conditions of war or domestic violence, it's, you know, usually done by, by you know, um, by community members or acquaintances or things like that. Um, so, uh, so most violence is pretty mundane. So what if these aspects, what if, what if gender and uh, disability were mundane parts of Gein and not the cause or like the, you know, the root of the, the story. And it was pretty easy to do that kind of analysis because although the national media was very concerned about really, they were just really obsessed with kind of a pop psychology analysis that's very different. You know, Emily Skidmore talks about how most most Americans in the mid-century didn't learn about trans people through medicine, but through newspaper and media. And so the ways that those were popularly discussed and the, and the ways that things like schizophrenia were popularly discussed in newspapers and magazines were very different than how, you know, clinicians would draw those boundaries. But regardless, the, the national media was, was very honed in on, on that. But the local media and, and Dean's neighbors were not convinced that those were were the issues at stake. So um, in the chapter, there are three sections and, and the three sections look at at what 
people from different positions, like what they thought the kind of root of the quote unquote madness was. Um, and so the national media, the root was, was you know, uh, mental disability, psychiatric disability, and gender. And then the next two sessions look at Gein's neighbors. Um, and then uh, lastly, the, the towns that were sort of near him. Um, so people from a little bit farther out. So for his neighbors, they understood him to be an odd bachelor. They understood him to be effeminate. They, they, a lot of the things that the, the national media kind of had these psychologized um, explanations for, it wasn't that local people disputed those or denied them. They were just ordinary to them. There were odd bachelors. There were always odd bachelors. That wasn't the problem, you know? So for them, the problem when they tried to to make sense of him, um, really went to these these racialized associations with um, the idea of the the primitive. So it took place in a couple different ways. So one was his hobbies. So he enjoyed reading adventure magazines and things like that, um, and um, mysteries. And so he thought that him reading these stories about these uh, sort of orientalist uh, and um, and racist and colonial stories about uh, you know cannibalism and headhunting and those sorts of things in different indigenous communities around the world um, that Gein sort of wasn't able to like understand the racial distinction between those stories and himself and that that was that was um, part of the problem and so it was that he, he wasn't properly quote unquote civilized and that he didn't understand those distinctions well enough. Um, and then for the communities that were like the towns that were a little farther out, so not his immediate neighbors, but people who sort of lived in the general vicinity, they told these stories about a region that they called the dead heart of Wisconsin um, that had poor soil and that they sort of, these were very anti-idyllic stories as they started, you know, locally about and then this would sort of become the basis for how horror stories, horror films would tell the stories later, um, where it was kind of this mysterious region where, you know, there were chicken thieves. And so they're all also murderers and things like that. So it was the soil itself um, that was that was the the source of the um, um, the problem for Dean. So again, focusing on the mundane, we see that that uh, different communities understood again, understood gender and mental or psychiatric disability to the extent that he had either to be ordinary and they found other explanations for his violence. Looking at the mundane, it, it isn't a way of saying that, you know, this is normal or like, you know, he's the quiet guy next door. We never had any suspicions. It, it's not intended to be that, but to look at, at, you know, if we assume that these things that are so often sensationalized are ordinary, if we just sort of held that static, then what else, what other stories might there be? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I would love to circle back to this question of a queer crip methodology. And I think that perhaps utilizing a queer crip method allows is a part of, or one of the things that that kind of lens yields is the possibility of a focus reading for the mundane through the sensational. Um, but I know that it's doing more than that for you. Um, so returning to this subject of interdisciplinarity, um, what is an appropriate subject of study for queer history, for disability history, um, I'd love to hear more about your method. Uh, and you've already started talking about uh, your queer crit method um, at various points in our conversation, but I'd love to hear a little bit more. Um, because I know that this is your primary interpretive lens. Uh, can you say more about what a queer crip methodology is, what it means for you, and how applying a queer crip methodology changes the practice of doing disability history? Um, and why did this particular method feel appropriate for the kind of story that you're that you were telling? Yeah, so um I talk about queer crip history as my methodological approach and framework. Um, and the uh, crip 
theory and crip analysis is more prominent in literary and cultural studies than it is in history. Um, so I'll explain the background a little bit. So um, some disabled people have identified themselves as crip, crip of course being a shortened form of cripple um, since the 70s or 80s. So it didn't start in academic circles, but it was taken up by academics. Um, scholars like Carrie Sandel, Robert McCrure, and um, Allison Kafer. Um, and it's a more politicized and contrarian um, sort of analysis. So um, Carrie Sandel describes cripping as, quote, uh, spinning mainstream representations or practices to reveal able-bodied assumptions. And so um, I think even going back to the Gein chapter that I was just discussing, I think you can see the way that I look at that material and try to spin the assumptions that disability is a problem or the, the root of violence or things like that, that it, that it can't just be a mundane sort of ordinary fact of life. Um, so I try to, you know, spin that kind of representation and to read against the grain of, of ableism. But I think it's important. I think that I think that history is a really important part of this. I have a chapter on uh, on horror films, and one of the things that I look at in depth is um, the experiences of some of the people who were extras in the films. Um, and so, for and so, if a scholar is just reading the text of a film and reading against the grain of it, that's one thing. But I think having the power of archival and historical research to supplement the analysis of the film really gives a lot more um, gives a lot more heft to that practice of spinning mainstream assumptions and and understanding um, um, the experiences of the disabled people who were involved with that film rather than just the representation of disability in the film. Um, the representation is important, but the material experiences of disability also have something to say about, um, about the re representation in addition to larger issues. Absolutely. Uh, I wanna build on your use of crip theory in your project. I know that you draw upon uh, Crip of Color critique, uh, which has a close relationship to Black feminist theory as, uh, the, as a theoretical resource for your analysis of white rural nonconformity. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about why these conceptual frameworks, so mostly in thinking about Crip of Color critique, but Black feminist theory is a part of that, were useful for the story you were telling and maybe reflect on uh, the complexities of using Black feminist or Crip of color theory to better understand the lives of white, rural, poor subjects. This is the question that was perhaps like the most at the forefront of my mind when I was reading your book because it brought up a lot of big picture questions for me about the portability of theories that were really initially generated to theorize the lives of particular marginalized communities, um, but obviously yield insights, ways of thinking, uh, like theorizing, ways of doing history that could be useful um, to better understand, to historicize or theorize the lives of people um, who that, that theory wasn't initially intended to touch. Um, or speak to. Uh, so I'm curious, I'm curious about how, how you've thought through that in your work. Just as a starting point, I think that, that Black feminist theory and queer of color critique and crip of color critique that have close relationships to it just has the most um, astute and powerful and nuanced um, analysis of of power and uh, and um, social formations, um, and so that is work that I read a lot and go back to. So it shaped the way that I was thinking about how how power functioned and, and all these other dynamics functioned in the work that I was doing, even though it's in a different circumstance. Um, you know the the huge risk, you know, one of the things I 
really um, wanted to avoid was to suggest that uh, that the subjects I'm writing of are sort of interchangeable with, you know, black women or um, or you know other other subjects of black feminist theory, criminal color critique, queer color critique, um, because they're not, you know, their 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 positionalities are not at all the same. Um, but for example, to think about criminal color critique, as Gina Kim theorizes it. Um, you know, she writes a lot about interdependence and mutual aid and, and these sorts of things among um, women of color, especially Black women. Um, and in the in the material that I'm looking at in the book, interdependence and mutual aid come up a lot, but there are also enormous limits. Like it doesn't work the, the same way at all. So, you know, mutual aid among white people only excluding people of color from that community obviously um is not uh is not a uh a model you know that we want to um work with or or build on or things like that or even you know examples of where mutual aid has has limits like in brother's keeper um when delbert ward when he was he was accused of murder and there was all this attention that came to him. Um, and uh, then all of a sudden the community supported him but before and his brothers, but before that there was much more limited support. And so um, some of why I, I draw on these theoretical resources is because, again, I think that they're the most astute analysts of power. And then another is because I, you know, I was already writing about interdependence and mutual aid and as you know Gina Kim's writing has also been been coming out and so then found natural you know conversational you know conversations between what I was seeing and and her work um that was really really helpful um just really foregrounding the way that you were looking to crip of color critique and black feminist theory for um like a highly developed and really nuanced analysis of power. Uh, the relationship to power and or larger systems and structures into kind of the demarcations of communities that are um, socially elevated or socially maligned uh, in a way that complicates, especially disability studies, more traditional fixation on identity, um, like thinking about the ways that um, many different kinds of communities are pushed to the margins and are marginalized in ways that put them in, in proximity to one another mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in a way that identity politics doesn't capture. Just about that, that last point about communities and proximity to each other, I was just talking about queer crypt analysis of sort of spinning representations. And one of the things that I've had to do as a historian looking at these, at these, you know, predominantly white communities, they're never entirely white. It's just that the way that they write about themselves, they only assume that the white people are part of the community. So for example, in the Ed Gein chapter, to sort of spin the assumptions that I'm talking about, not just about ableism, but also about whiteness, um, to spin those assumptions required doing all kinds of other different types of research to really go into depth about, you know, all of the Jamaican farm workers and Mexican farm workers that were in the community. There were, you know, reading the Chicago Defender mentioning there were Black folks that had vacation homes in that, in that area. Um, um, and then even like one of the white women victims that he killed a few years earlier, she ran a bar that that was mostly uh, most of her patrons were people of color. So she was a white woman, but the community didn't care about her as much when she died, even though Gein said he killed her. <laughs> like they didn't really look into it. So I started with these communities, with communities being in proximity to each other and how sometimes in order to really um, see that in historical materials that want to deny those relationships um, where like, the, the white folks making the materials want to deny those relationships requires this kind of spinning and looking in different kinds of kinds of sources and things like that. Um, but the other place where it comes up the most is in is in chapter six in the 1990s when I'm looking at um, at uh, Brandon Tina the Brandon Tina story. So the documentary is about 
part of a thing that happened. So the thing that happened was that three people were killed in Nebraska in 1993. One of them was a white trans man, one of them was a white cis woman, and one of them was a black cis man who also um, um, used a prosthetic limb. Um, and so the film is just about Brandon Tina, and most of the discourse has been about Brandon Tina, who was the white the white trans man. But I analyzed the ways that, you know, sometimes people would ask, like, why was Philip De Philip Devine as the, the black man and Lisa Lambert as the white woman? Um, people would ask, why is Philip Devine in this place? But I think everybody involved was sort of at the lived on the edges and the margins of this town. Um, the white woman that he was dating was known to date other black men. Their reputation was such that a lot of white men in town wouldn't date them. And so race in that situation is not just Philip Devine as the Black person, right, but is also about how the white women were racialized in terms of their proximity to Blackness and 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 all of these other things um, related to communities kind of living in proximity together. I'm so glad that how I was making sense of your answer to that last, last question led you to say more about marginalized communities in close proximity. Um, in unexpected ways that are often glossed over in these sensationalized accounts of perverse whiteness, um, like failing to grasp kind of interracial contact zones on the ground. So I saw that your next project is on the history of chronic illness. Um, as a historian of medicine, also as a chronically ill person, I'm really excited to see that this is a project that you're working on, specifically thinking about the history of chronic illness um, as a gendered and a racialized category. So I'm, I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit more about the way that that project is developing in as much or as little detail as feels appropriate at this time, whatever you want to share is perfect. Um, and alongside that, anything else exciting for you on the horizon that you want to share with our listeners? Sure. Um, you know, in 2019, I was a lot farther along on this, on this project of the history of chronic illness, but not being able to travel to archives or conferences or things like that over the last couple of years has really kind of um, slowed things down. Um, but yeah, so I'm looking at how chronic illness came to be understood as a social burden and specifically the racializing gendered ways that it came to be understood as a social burden. And so I'm looking a lot at, um, at care and ideas of um, friendlessness. So friendlessness is most associated with um, 19th century institutions. Um, there were a variety of institutions. They could be um, for orphans, they could be for people with disabilities. Many, though not all, served people who were formerly enslaved. Um, and obviously you had communities and, and networks and families, you know, ripped away from them. What friendship and friendlessness meant, even in the early 20th century, um, was not this kind of like personalized psychological idea of friendship as it is today, but about uh, the ability to have material support. So somebody might have interpersonal support for many people in their life, but if those people also had, did not have access to the resources needed for a person to stay in their home, be cared for, then they might end up at an institution for the friendless. Um, so I'm interested in the idea of friendlessness, but I'm not looking at those institutions for the friendless. It's more that that idea that was kind of this where I started. And then I sort of carried that idea forward. And I'm now looking at chronic illness, especially in the early to mid 20th century um, and how that relates to, to care and, and home care in particular. Um, but yeah. Oh, that sounds so exciting. Ryan Lee, I cannot wait to see how that project develops. And it's so fascinating the way that it emerged from like encountering a term that I've, I've never heard before, this, this concept of friendlessness, which was a part of um, kind of more institutional histories of disability or chronic illness. And I'm so curious to see 
how that relationship between friendlessness and care and kind of deprivation being cut off from sources of material support as a result of chronic illness uh, play out. So I'm thinking like chronic illness became a topic of conversation more starting in the 30s and 40s. And then there were all of these kinds of surveys during the Great Depression. There was a national health survey and, and sort of it became a bigger concern in the 30s and 40s. But I'm looking a little bit before that. And then um, right now I'm hoping to end before Medicare and Medicaid, because I feel like that will make the project balloon and become infinitely more difficult to wrap my head around. But, But we'll see where it goes. So exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I know that our listeners will be so thrilled to listen to this episode and I can't wait to see what's next for you um, what's further further on down the pipeline um, I know that I'll be re- revisiting peculiar places uh, as a reference point in my own work and I'm really really so thrilled to hear about this next project for you thank you thank you very much for having me here of course have a good night thank you you too Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.